You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Hey, good afternoon, um, everyone. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Jesse Kaufman today. Jesse is an associate professor of history at Eastern Michigan University, and he's taught there since 2010. He received his PhD from Stanford University, which is where um, I first met Jesse. We were in the program there together um, in 2008. And his first book, which came out in 2015 with Harvard University Press, is based on the dissertation that he wrote at Stanford. The book, entitled Elusive Alliance, The German Occupation of Poland in World War I, focuses on the veteran Prussian commander Hans Hartwig von Bessler as he crafted a vision of Central Europe in which Poland would become Germany's permanent ally. The book is an extremely important contribution to the historiography in multiple ways. It was, as I told Jesse earlier, one of the favorite books of my graduate students when I taught it last uh, year. And as we all know, if graduate students like the book and don't find too much to criticize with it, it must be a great book. So in addition to garnering all kinds of positive reviews in academic journals, in the uh, latest version of the American Historical Review, there was a really glowing um, review of the book. So it's it's got all of those um, very positive reviews from the academic journals, but also from graduate students. And I want to mention just three of the historiographical contributions that the book makes. First of all, Jesse's book is part of a growing body of scholarship that seeks to place the experiences on the Eastern Front during the First World War at the center of our understanding of the war in general, moving us away from the trenches um, in France and towards um, a much more dynamic, fluid, and socially experimental occupation in the East. Jesse also pushes against the idea that had become quite popular in the historiography that Germany's policies during the First World War toward Poland and the East more generally were a kind of dress rehearsal for the Nazi occupation 25 years later. And he does this very successfully with his deep archival research. And third, because Jesse um, learned Polish and uses sources in Polish as well as German, he was able to explore how the Poles spoke back to the German authorities, how they themselves shaped the nature of the occupation And they appear, therefore, not simply as the victims, um, but also as important actors in the story. In addition to Elusive Alliance, Jesse has written numerous important articles and book chapters. And his contributions are are part of a growing trend in the historiography that challenges uh, the Zonderweg thesis um, as Germans engage with Eastern Europe, and particularly Poland. The article that he co-authored with Michael Meng and Winston Chu that came out in German history in Uh, 2013, I think has been particularly influential in this regard, and I would recommend it to anyone who's thinking about German history in the light of Germany's engagement with um, Eastern Europe. His new book, which will also come out with Harvard, is entitled Blood Dim Tide, Central Europe's Long Great War, 1905 to 1921. This is an ambitious project in various ways. Jesse will stretch the chronological borders of the war um, before 1914 and after 1918. And he's also engaging with multiple perspectives, political, national, ideological, and also um, considering the multiple ways in which the story of the uh, First World War has been written into different national historiographies, whether German, Polish, Jewish, uh, Russian, and so on. 
And it's from this latter project, and particularly from this um, historiographical aspect, um, for which his talk uh, will be based. The title is Reflections in a Shattered Mirror, The First World War in German, Polish and Russian History. Please join me in welcoming Jesse Kaufman. Uh, thank you, Catherine, for that wonderful introduction, and please thank your graduate students for me. It's all well and good to get a good review in a journal, but if graduate students don't savage your book and tear it to pieces, <laughs> feel like you really accomplished something. Um, thank you all for coming, and I'd like to thank Krika for having me here for this talk. It's really a great honor to speak at a university that has such a long tradition of excellence in humanistic uh, scholarship. So, in 1931, Winston Churchill published a history of the First World War's Eastern Front. He called it the Unknown War. A little over 80 years later, in 2014, the French historian Alexandre Sumpf titled his survey of Russia's Great War, La Grande Guerre Oubliée, The Forgotten Great War. I think that this very powerfully conveys an essential truth about the so-called Eastern Front in the First World War. Part of what I'll be arguing for today is maybe getting rid of that term, the Eastern Front. It has never received the attention, popular or scholarly, that the war's Western Front has, despite the fact that the political consequences of the war in the East, in Europe's so-called bloodlands, were, I would argue, of far greater consequence to the course of European and even indeed to world history than the awful slaughter that took place in Belgium and France. So I think it's understandable that the Eastern Front never really figured very prominently in French or British or American histories of the war. Less explicably, it is also forgotten in those places most directly affected by the war in the East. As two Polish scholars, Włodzimierz Boroje and Maciej Górny, have recently noted, to school children in Warsaw, no less than to scholars in Paris, the First World War is synonymous with battles like Ypres or the Somme or Verdun, with trench warfare, and with the ghastly and bloody stalemate in the West. So, as an aspiring historian of the First World War, this was precisely what drew me to the war's Eastern Front, a sense that it was relatively wide open for exploration and at the same time important, uh, because sometimes things that are overlooked are justly overlooked. But this, to me, uh, seemed important and worth our attention. Although I quickly discovered this also poses practical, very kind of mundane problems, that there is not really a big, rich, secondary literature on the war's Eastern Front. So when I first started my first project as a grad school research paper, I was reading in a survey about Germany and Poland. The First World War was published in the 50s, and it said the Germans opened a university. I thought, wow, that's a, I got to explain that. That's very strange. <laughs> Why don't I go to the library and get the you know, hundreds of books that are probably written on this? And there was nothing uh, at all. So that survey that was published in the 50s is it, um, or was it? So my first book was on a small part of this war in the East, on Germany's occupation of Poland from 1915 to 1918. And as Catherine uh, pointed out, I illustrate how the German occupation regime attempted to create a kind of Polish client state that it would rule after the war. And this client state was to have a measure of cultural and political autonomy, and was the occupier's hope to be based on a measure of uh, acceptance and accommodation and uh, self-determination. So the occupiers created various institutions, a university, a school system, and so on, elected governments meant to advance this nation-building project. And this, in turn, led directly to my current project, a general history of the war in the East, 
in part because I wanted to create a kind of broader framework within which my smaller picture fits uh, that, that to me was lacking at the start of my, of my research. So something that would illustrate and bring together what the war in the East and Central Europe meant. So as part of this wider project, I turned this kind of truism about the Eastern Front that it had been forgotten into a question. Why had it been forgotten? So today I'll discuss a couple of answers I've come up with using Russia, Poland, and Germany as case studies. And we'll see a couple, I think, common themes across all of them. Now, one reason why the Great War in the East is forgotten is that in those states and societies most affected by it, those that waged the war there and those who suffered its privations and consequences, that the War of 1914-1918 was so thoroughly overshadowed by later events, most obviously the Second World War with its genocidal horrors. But as Winston Churchill's book reminds us, to which we could add uh, John Wheeler Bennett's book on the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, The Forgotten Peace. Uh, Churchill's book was published in 1931. Uh, Wheeler Bennett's book was published in 1938. So interestingly, this had been forgotten, forgotten even before the Second World War. So it's, it's further back than that. I think the political tumult of the post-World War I years had consigned the Eastern Front to oblivion well before Hitler came to power. The disintegration and upheavals in the region that set in beginning in 1917, especially the revolution and civil war in Russia, the creation of new states from the ruins of empire, the border wars that followed from all of this, overlapping foreign and civil wars, among other things, created, I think, a profound sense of rupture, both within and outside of the region. Already in the 1920s, the war in the East seemed to belong to some dim and distant past fought by states that no longer existed for causes that no longer carried any meaning. A second reason why the war in the East has, so to speak, slipped through the historical cracks is that the fragmentation of the region that followed from the war was reflected in the way its history was written. So, to the degree that the war has been written or thought about at all, has been subsumed into numerous historical subfields, Jewish history and Russian history, Czech history and German history, military history and social history, and so on, each with its own concerns and questions, and most of which relegate the war itself to a place of minor importance. Well, a good example of this, the way the kind of the historical fields um, developed in, in tandem without really speaking to one another for decades, is the, the way German history treated the period, the war in the East, and the way it developed in, Jew in Jewish history. In German history, the argument has long been, often on the basis of very little evidence, that the Germans in the East essentially did a, a kind of trial run for what the Nazis would do. There were more restraints in place at the time, but you see in the Germans in the East uh, clear foreshadowing of what the Nazis would do. In the field of Jewish history, people like uh, Ezra Mendelssohn, who's written some of the key works on Zionism, he traces the beginning of Zionism as a mass movement in Central Europe to 1916. Uh, when the Germans drove the Russians out, thereby lifting a lot of the kind of more oppressive structures that were kept on the Jews, and in a sense, to a degree, liberalize the political climate. So there was Yiddish theaters were created, political parties were created. This is from Wuj, this is a, a, a Zionist party, a socialist Zionist in 1916, uh, trying to get elections for the elected city councils. Uh, and in fact, I won't try and pronounce it, but the main orthodox uh, political party in Israel today. If you read their own institutional history, they will tell you that they were founded in the First World War uh, in the, during the German occupation. That's when it became a real 
because most of the Jews were Orthodox and not interested in, in this sort of thing. Is that Abu Dhabi Israel? Yes, yeah, okay. yep, yep. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, so as part of my history, I wanted to find a way to overcome these barriers and establish some sort of unity that allow me to discuss and analyze the Eastern Front as a whole, something that I think was never really a problem in historical writing about the Western Front, as the shared experience of the trenches provided a kind of dreadful center of gravity around which the respective national histories could array themselves, uh, as well as a kind of common culture of remembrance and experience. <clears throat> so I wanted to find some unity and also to link the war with broader historical processes in order to illustrate how crucially important it was to the region and its history. So after surveying some of the ways that the war in the East failed to find a place in Russia, Poland, and German, Russian, Polish, and German, German history, uh, I will illustrate the conceptual framework I've been working on to try and uh, impose some sort of co cohesion and uh, coherence on the Eastern Front and allow me to write its history as a, as a unified phenomenon. And I do that namely by not thinking of it as a front at all, but as a, a theater, uh, Central European theater, borrowing from Clausewitz. So, so first to Russia and the Soviet Union. So the fate of the war, I think, in, in Russian and Soviet history explains a lot about why and how the Eastern Front became the Forgotten War. The war in the East was fought almost exclusively on Imperial Russian territory, and one historian has recently suggested we should ditch the Eastern Front and instead call it the Russian Front, which makes a lot of sense. So in a way, Russian history should have been the kind of natural historical home for the history of the Great War's Eastern Front. But this was not to be. Now this is due in part to the long shadow cast by the Second World War, the sheer scale of the death and devastation inflicted by the Germans on Russia, as well as the prestige that accrued to the Bolshevik regime, the wake of its victory, prestige that translated into a, a kind of deep fund of political legitimacy on which communism was able to draw for decades, and I think in subtle ways um, it still continues to draw. Assure that the great patriotic war would have a place in Russian historical consciousness that, it seems, could leave little room for much else, including the First World War. But what's intrigued me is that this was the case in Russia and the Soviet Union more generally decades before the first Nazi tanks crossed into Soviet territory in June 1941. The Bolshevik seizure of power, the Russian Civil War, which when you factor in disease and famine and so on, killed more people than the First World War, and the establishment and consolidation of the Soviet state ensured that the Great War would be consigned to historical oblivion almost as soon as it ended. I think the more recent and immediate trauma of those years, the post-war years, the genuine rupture represented by the revolution and war, and the ideological constraints imposed by the communist regime all meant that the Tsarist Empire's last war would never be able to find its way into some sort of larger narrative that would imbue it with meaning. Um, so the impossibility of assimilating the war into a, a kind of communist framework was evidenced uh, almost immediately after the regime stabilized. In contrast to France, Britain, and Germany, there were no monuments or memorials erected to mark the deaths and commemorate the sacrifice of some two million soldiers who had died fighting for the Tsar in what the Bolshevik regime considered a criminal war fought by uh, a despised ruler. So mourning and commemorating the dead in Russia became a primarily private affair. And I think this is most powerfully symbolized by the fate 
of the uh, a big World War I cemetery that was built in Moscow. Uh, it was established by wealthy private benefactors in 1915. Uh, the Moscow City Fraternal Cemetery, it was called. It was used to bury the dead from the First World War. That's with the picture of that. Uh, <clears throat> that's that, that picture in the corners when they're burying the dead from the First World War. But then the Civil War broke out and they started burying the dead from both sides, uh, the whites and reds, there. And then the Bolsheviks used it as an execution ground. And there was, I think, an archbishop and several priests and other people who were shot. Uh, and then they were buried there. And then in the 1920s, it, it is sort of neglected and left to fall apart. And then sometime between the 30s and the 40s, uh, and after the Second World War, it's all just torn down. The headstones are removed. The church that's there is destroyed. Um, and today, it's just basically a park. Um, I was just reading an article about it in a, in a German magazine, somebody who went there. Apparently, this is a, a main thoroughfare people have to walk through to get to the subway station that's there. And they have no idea that there's probably, you know, 100,000 people buried under this park, right? Um, but it's just another Russian cemetery, I guess, another terrible place. So, uh, so, meanwhile, scholarly history on the period carried out under the Bolsheviks as well as outside of the Soviet Union, and therefore you would think beyond its ideological constraints, tended to focus exclusively on the revolution, treating the war as kind of a prelude to the really important events. This has continued to be the case down to the present day, even as very, I think, sophisticated and, and important works on Russia in the area have made arguments about the continuities between the war, the civil war, and the revolution. For example, uh, the idea that um, the Bolshevik surveillance state actually has its roots in wartime surveillance in Imperial Russia, or the sort of continuum of violence stretching from the war to the Civil War and even into the post-war years, um, where, where the Bolsheviks create a regime in many ways founded on violence. But the theme, the key theme has remained the same. It's really histories of the revolution, asking questions about the revolution. So uh, there are some signs that this is beginning to change. Scholars inside and outside of Russia have begun to ask questions about the war itself and how the Russian Empire fought it and what sort of impact uh, it had on the Russian Empire. These are just some slides of Russian propaganda posters um, illustrating some of the themes that have become of interest to historians lately. Um, the impact of the war on gender norms, for example, in Russia has become an important topic. Um, Russian propaganda has also become uh, a topic of interest. A lot of it focused on generating hatreds against the Germans. The Germans in the beginning of the war bombed and, and uh, or they shelled a Polish town and killed a lot of civilians. Uh, and the Russians made sure the Poles never forgot that. It's all, it was full of their propaganda. So this is supposed to show the, you know, the horror in Kalish, was the Polish town. So historians like the aforementioned Alexander Sumpf, uh, Joshua Sanborn, Sean McMeekin, Peter Gattrell, Mark von Hagen have all written important works on occupations or gender relations or industrial mobilization and so on. Similarly, a two-volume work on the war written by Russian scholars and published under the auspices of the Russian Academy of Sciences reveals a commitment to broadening the scope of inquiry within Russia itself and includes articles on topics such as combat on the Western Front or the war at sea. One interesting thing I've noticed, by the way, in the Russian historiography is that in Britain and in France, these kind of broad overviews of the war tend not to say much about the arrival of the United States, for whatever reason. I mean, it's there, but it's not really treated 
as a major thing. Whereas in the Russian historiography, that is still to them marks a major turning point. And it's kind of a, a carryover, I think, from the Cold War when this was seen argued that you know this was the beginning of the Cold War, you know, uh, uh, capitalism was coming, you know, coming in to get them and so on. So it's been stripped of that uh, in a, you know, ideological baggage, but it is still a, a huge turning point in Russian history in the way they write it. Uh, so, so Russian history was uh, one historical tradition in which the history of the Eastern Front could have found a home, but did not. Uh, Polish history is another, since much of the fighting, as well as the occupations, occurred on what would later become Poland. So this gives you some idea. This is the German-Russian border. Um, this is the front as of early 1915. So most of this in here would have been the former kingdom of Poland that was annexed by Russia uh, after after the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and then in spring 1915, there's a major offensive by the Germans, and it essentially drives the Russians completely out of Poland, and essentially out of Central Europe. And uh, this is the front as of, say, late summer 1915. So this entire area, um, again, which would become part of Poland, uh, is where the fighting took place and what the Germans occupied for uh, most of the war. So. Like Russia, the Second World War obliterated what came before in many ways, physically, culturally, emotionally. Uh, in Poland today, World War II has a place in popular and scholarly historical consciousness. It really does not, uh, does not leave room for anything else, in part because they see it as taking back their history from the communists. Um, what they really fasten on in Poland is the Polish uprising, August 1944, against the Nazis. Um, According to the communists, these people were criminals and you know, neo-fascists and traitors and so on. And so now the Poles have taken it back and said, uh, no, we're going to celebrate them. So they, they really focus on the, on the uprising. It's remarkable. I went to a, to a bookstore in Warsaw, and there was, I went to the history section, and there was like a little shelf that said, you know, world history from the dawn of time in 1939 or something. There's some books there. And then just a wall of Second World War books, right? And then within the Second World War books, most of them were about the uprising. I mean, it's really, uh, for understandable reasons, I think. They sort of fetishize it, but I understand why, because they, you know, they couldn't talk about it for so long, so. So, communism, like in Russia, imposed ideological, ideological constraints that prevented rigorous and meaningful engagement with the war. Mainly historians were expected to look, look at the activities of sort of obscure uh, communist activists and so on. But like Russia, it actually predates the Second World War and communism, primarily because the war resulted in the reestablishment of an independent Polish state, which affected both uh, history and memory. In a sense, 1918 marks the reemergence of Polish history, and in, a, in a consequence, uh, a new narrative emerged that drew only on those facets of the war that were directly linked to this reestablishment. And this is one of the, I think, subtle but very profound differences in the way the war is remembered in the, in the East and in the Western Front. If you are in uh, Europe for any of the ceremonies commemorating the outbreak of the war in places like England, I mean, there's still a sense of just terrible grief and sorrow that hangs over the whole experience of the First World War. In the Central Europe, First World War does not have that overwhelmingly negative connotation. Uh, it is what ushered in their, their independence. So. Um, I know that institutions in the European Union like to fund projects that you know, people say we're going to create a transnational common European history of this and that. 
but you're going to run up against these very real differences, I think. You're not going to convince the Poles that uh, the First World War was a horrible thing because their state came from it. So, <clears throat> so like Russia, there was uncertainty about what to do with the legacy of those who had fought for the imperial overlords. And the vast majority of the Poles who fought in the First World War fought loyally for either the German or the Austrian or the Russian emperor. Uh, in the years after the war, however, a focus of attention, uh, for example, in elementary schools and so on, focused exclusively on the Polish legions. This was a small number of people who primarily in the Austrian-ruled Poland at the beginning of the war formed themselves into a kind of paramilitary formation and conducted their own sort of uh, independent in invasion of Russia, although they then later became part of the Austrian army. But anyway, they were seen as the kind of precursors to the national revival. They were the pioneers, the heroes of the state, and so on. Um, and they, their role in the war simply fit much more neatly into the new narrative that people wanted to hear about, justifiably and understandably, which was the, uh, the rebirth of Poland as an independent state. But outside school, uh, in the streets and in their homes and so on, these children would have known veterans of the imperial armies because that <coughs> is what, what Poles uh, fought in. Um, have a, a, a memoir by one of the, uh, the Polish legions that were primarily kind of idealistic students who you know, were uh, been reading history and literature and had driven them mad as those things often do. And so they were, they all flocked to join the legions and I have a memoir and this guy's very honest because it's a brutally um, disillusioning experience for him. He goes to the, when the war breaks out, he's delighted, he joins the legion and he, he remembers marching into Russia and he thinks, oh, I'm the heir to Kosciuszko and all of the great Polish resistance <laughs> fighters. And the, the idea was that when they got into Russia, the Polish peasants would sort of rise up and say, yay, and you know, we're glad to see you, and let's start a, a revolution against the Russians or whatever. But three or four days later, when he hasn't eaten and barely slept, and all thoughts of Kosciuszko are long gone, and he just wants something to drink, they stumble into their first village. Uh, and he's just shattered, because the townspeople make it clear they don't want him there. Uh, they have no interest. In, in, in any sort of uprising. And in fact, all the Polish soldiers who were mobilized for the Tsar uh, did not cause any trouble and went and did their duty. So he kept fighting. He decided he'd have to make the peasants see that uh, he was their, their great hero. But uh, yeah, they made it clear they didn't like him. So, um, but even historical writing ignored the First World War. In general, histories of the period written um, immediately after the war either celebrated the legions or continued the debate between partisans of the two kind of commanding figures of Polish independence, uh, Josef Pilsudski, who represented a, the kind of um, civic nationalism and wanted to include lots of people in the reestablishment of a Polish state, and Roman Domowski, uh, who was a much more kind of biological, racial, integral nationalist. Both of them had their adherence in, during the war, although um, it's not, I think, acknowledged often enough now. Actually, Domowski was much more popular uh, and he had a much bigger following, mainly in the cities. They both played important roles during the war. Pilsudski is a kind of uh, guerrilla resistance fighter and so on, though Domowski spent time in Paris uh, representing Polish interests to the Allies and so on, was instrumental in getting Poland recognized by them. Um, so after the war, essentially what happens is that their respective followers continue this debate about who is more important, uh, and they found their own journals and publications and they're writing books, 
and so on. So, this too, I think, has continued in the present day. Polish histories of the period tend to focus almost exclusively on the activities of the various independence movements, although new avenues are opening up. Uh, histories of the peasants during this period, for example. Most of the people <coughs> living in Poland would have been peasants, and as that, that uh, legionary found out, they really weren't interested in all this stuff. They were loyal to the czar, because to them, the czar was who had liberated them from serfdom, uh, and they, you know, the Pol their Polish lords or whatever, they, you know, they had felt no reason to be loyal to them whatsoever. So, uh, as well as a theme of coexisting national and imperial loyalty, this is a, a kind of key theme in what I think is the best book to have appeared recently on the war in the East by those Polish scholars. It's called Nasza Wojna, Our War, and they really mean it as our, that is, we were, we were all caught up in this imperial war, all of these different nationalities, uh, we were loyal to our emperors, but we were all killing each other, sort of the basic, basic um, argument of that book. One trend in the history of the First World War that should have led to greater attention to the World War I in Poland and elsewhere on the Eastern Front has, I think, been a great disappointment. Like many other fields, we who work on the war are supposed to be embracing transnational and global history, uh, especially global history in First World War. So I thought, well, this is the chance for the Eastern Front to get its due. Unfortunately, it seems to have become a synonym for uh, the war outside of Europe. And Polish history, I think, before this was seen as really too Eastern to be part of European history, and to put it in Eastern European history. Well, now it's too European to be a part of world history. Really, we mean the war in you know, Africa and so on. So uh, still, um, and this has even spread to uh, historical writing in Poland. There's a good survey that just came out by a distinguished Polish historian uh, called The Suicide of Europe, and it's a great synthesis, deals with all sorts of, I think there's a whole chapter on Japan, um, but really nothing on the Eastern Front. So again, it has sort of fallen, fallen through, the, through the cracks. Okay, so Russian history and Polish history, two traditions that should have incubated and developed a history of the Great War in the East, but did not. What about one of the major combatants there, the one whose armies, I think, more than any other, shaped the course and outcome of the war there, and whose troops spent years occupying the territory of their enemies and ruling over their citizens? Germany, of course. Germany's forgotten war in the East is much more difficult to explain than Poland or Russia's. What is strange is that unlike in those places, the war itself was certainly not forgotten or neglected in the years after it ended, quite the opposite. It's a constant point of political and cultural and emotional reference. But the Eastern Front was, as German scholars have recently pointed out, already by the early 1920s, the Eastern Front has largely disappeared from German discourse about the war, which focused on the West. As emerged from our discussion at lunch today, it also became kind of disconnected from arguments about the border because, uh, yes, the, the border with Poland continued to be a huge point of contention and of almost obsession, uh, but it was somehow not linked with the war, which meant the war in France. So, it's strange not only because Germany had fought there, but it arguably had won, forcing the Bolsheviks to sign the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in 1918. I'm surprised that people did not sort of fasten on to this it's a kind of modest consolation for the ultimate loss. Uh, one argument that I've made about this, oh, this is a painting by the Polish legions. Polish legions didn't really do all that much in the war, but because there's all these intellectuals and so on, they have all these incredible paintings that they did. Poem, they wrote poems and 
<clears throat> so this shows Pilsudski, I think, is in this picture at the front, inspecting them, getting ready to send them off to Russia. So uh, one argument I've made in the past is there's a sense of a kind of shame that hangs over the ultimate outcome of Germany's war in the East, and that's connected with what happened uh, in Eastern Germany between November 1918 and the signing of the Treaty of Versailles in June 1919. It was a, an uprising and a civil war that set in in Germany's Polish, uh, Polish provinces, mainly Posen here and, and uh, West Prussia here, but especially Posen was really the epicenter of it. There's an uprising of the Polish, uh, Prussian Poles that begins in December 1918. This segues into a kind of civil war that rages for a while. And then finally, the Allies, uh, there's a ceasefire that's signed, I think, in the spring, but the fighting continues. And then finally, the Allies um, award Poland, uh, award Posen to Poland in the Treaty of Versailles. And this is, a, is kind of quintessential um, defining characteristic of the war in Central Europe, as Robert Gerworth has recently pointed out in his book, The Vanquish, you know, the war does not end in 1918. In fact, not only does it not end in 1918, but in some places the violence gets worse. Uh, so, you know, there's no fighting in Posen until December 1918. So, <clears throat> here's a um, picture I found of poles in, in uh, trenches in Posen. Interesting for a number of reasons, along with the trench, it symbolizes kind of continuity um, with the Western Front. Uh, but also, I mean, looking at their, their helmets, they're probably German. In fact, they probably learned how to dig a trench by serving in the German army. Uh, so, so in Germany, this was widely perceived as the outcome of Germany's wartime pol policies in Poland. So. As, as discussed earlier, the German occupation regime kind of encouraged, uh, to some degree, supported the expression of Polish cultural and political life, and to the perception uh, of people at the time. So this is a German zone of occupation, and then this is sort of a rough approximation of the ethno-linguistic distribution of Poles in Central Europe. So you can see it stretching uh, through Russian Poland and then well into Posen and in um, West Prussia. The people at the time, this was an inevitable uh, consequence of Germany's encouragement of Polish nationalism. The occupation in Poland ends very badly for the Germans. The soldiers mutiny. Uh, they hand their weapons over to Polish insurgents who put them on trains and send them back to Germany. And shortly after that is when the uprising in Posen begins. So pe to people in Germany, it seemed to be all part of one and the same thing. Uh, you know, they're, they're, the people who ran that occupation were denounced by politicians and newspapers and so on. Oh, these idiots, what were they thinking? You know, encouraging the Poles, didn't they know what was gonna happen? It was gonna spread into our own Polish territories and, and so on. So, uh, after the Second World War, German historical writing on Eastern Europe is uh, shaped and I would say imprisoned by various political and cultural constraints um, nonetheless rigid because they are informal rather than the kind of formal restraints imposed in communist regimes. Uh, most writing in the East on the first, or most writing about the Germans in the East during the First World War has tended to emphasize Germany's supposed war aims there and the way they foreshadowed the Nazis. 
uh, or a more recent version of this is um, that uh, Germans made up these stories about Russian barbarians uh, pillaging villages in East Prussia. And then this is a connection we see between World War I and World War II. And by the constraints on the German historians, I mean, uh, I have the, I mean, it's very clear the Russians did do this. Uh, I mean, I have the memoirs of the officers saying, we went into East Prussia, we thought somebody shot at us from that village, we went in there and killed everybody and burned it down. Um, it's harder for German historians, I think, to make that argument because they risk, if you like, they are siding with maybe some sort of unsavory political debate or something. Uh, but <clears throat> it's true the Russians did do that. So, three countries whose historical traditions should have kept the war in the East firmly within their narratives and thereby linked to the larger narrative of the Great War, but for various reasons did not. So in general, Political and cultural ruptures and fragmentations of the post-war area also cause ruptures and fragmentations within these histories. So in setting out to write a history of the front, I had to find a way to overcome this and establish a framework that would allow me to see the war in the East as a whole, to establish what it meant for the states and societies that fought it. So, that's a picture, uh, by the way, of. Uh, uh, that May 3rd is a big holiday in Poland. It's kind of celebrates this 18th century constitution, and celebrating it was, was forbidden under the Russians. Any, any sort of holiday that had Polish patriotic connotations tended to be forbidden. Uh, so it was the Germans who say, okay, you can come out and celebrate May 3rd, and as you can see, it was a huge success. Uh, this parade apparently went on for hours. So they're acting, they are marching by Warsaw University. You can see the gate there in the background. Um, intriguing thing about this that I've never quite been able to explain is that among the students are numerous women who are marching. So I don't know if it was the Germans who led, uh, encouraged women to enroll in the university. It would have been very unusual, but so you can see there are quite a few. So, uh, my new book, I argue that it makes sense to talk out of an Eastern front. Um, it's one thing for a number of reasons, not the least, least of which being it wasn't to the east of most of the people who fought there, or the states that were responsible for fighting there. The Austrians, it's the northeast, you know, it's in the northeast. For the Russians, it's the western front. Uh, and this leaves uh, lots of confusion in the, when reading Russian history because the Russians grouped their armies together in operational strategic formations called fronts. So the Russian northwest <laughs> front was actually what we might think of as the north. Eastern Front, or in the Northeastern Front, but to that it was a Northwestern Front, and armies that invaded Galicia were part of the Southwestern Front. So, so I define it instead as the Central European Theater, uh, and I borrow the definition here from the great Prussian theorist of warfare, Karl von Clausewitz. Uh, he defined the theater of war as a kind of subunit of a larger war that, for geographical reasons, Kind of possesses its own internal dynamic and is to some degree uh, separate from the larger war within which it is embedded. So I've kind of adopted that and modified it a little bit, uh, positing not that physical geography but political geography did, did in fact provide a definition of the Central European theater. It made it separate from the rest of the war, gave it its own internal dynamic and linked together the belligerent states that were fighting there as well as the occupied population. 
by ensnaring them, I think, in powerful historical forces which were poorly understood at the time, but which exercised a decisive influence on the course of 20th century history. So this is a map of basically what we might call the Eastern, Eastern Front. Uh, but here's a, my first attempt at drawing a map of what I mean by the Central European theater. So if we look at the places where the Austrian, Russian, and German empires fought, and that their troops occupied, it all took place within the multinational borderlands where these three empires met. Historians have called this part of an imperial shatter zone, running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. It's called the shatter zone because there were areas of potential volatility, primarily caused by the rise of nationalism within multinational empires. Nationalism that could easily spread and destabilize the entire region. It's because within this shatter zone, domestic and foreign political pressures met in the early 20th century. So national movements pressed their governments for greater autonomy, not necessarily greater independence. Lithuanians, for example, Baltics wanted Lithuanian schools. Ukrainians wanted the right to publish uh, poetry and literature in the Ukrainian language, uh, and so on. This caused a lot of tension between these movements and their imperial governments, uh, but also between national movements themselves, who often made mutually exclusive demands. Um, in Lemberg slash Lvov slash Lviv, both of Ukrainian and Polish nationalists said, this is a part of our cultural patrimony. We absolutely must have decisive influence in the city. Same thing was happening up in uh, Vilnius, where Polish and Lithuanian nationalists both claimed that, said we absolutely must have this city. There's, uh, I mean, we can't do without it. So they're mutually exclusive. These tensions also became intertwined with international disputes, in part because of the way these populations crossed all of these boundaries, especially the Poles, who I think were the really key to all of this, uh, but Ukrainians as well. So Austria or Russia could never treat, for example, its Polish policy simply as a matter of domestic policy. Uh, one example, as rivalries and tensions between Russia and Austria sort of geared up uh, because of the Balkans, well, suddenly uh, Austria became a very congenial home for Polish paramilitaries who gathered there and uh, they sort of turned a blind eye while they engaged in various paramilitary exercises, clearly planning an invasion of Russia. So, uh, so this is my attempt to define the, uh, the Central European theater. So from the white line east is, is essentially where the, the fighting itself took place. But from the red line east, this is the area in which the various national movements overlapped and spilled over international boundaries. So this, this really is part of that kind of shatter zone of, uh, of empires. And it includes Germany. This is another, to my mind, I think kind of disappointment in, in some of the recent German history on the war because it's, there's an idea, well, we want to explore colonialism. This is a war fought by empires. What does it mean to have a war fought by empires? But they simply kind of ignore uh, Polish, um, Prussian Poland and talk about Germany's overseas empires, which I think were really very unimportant during the war. But during the, you know, when the war's going on, Germans are terrified about what's going to happen in Prussian Poland. They are in that way linked to Austria and to Russia and or, or that kind of continental multilingual empire. So there was tensions uh, 
in the years before the war, so you know, the, the Polish uh, sort of viceroy in Galicia was killed by a Ukrainian nationalist. Um, probably most significantly, the 1905 revolution in Russia looks one way if you look at, at the industrial cities, um, looks mainly driven by class grievances and so on. But in the western part of the Russian Empire, revolution of 1905 was definitely uh, in heavily influenced by nationalism. You had Lithuanian elites getting together, you know, demanding their autonomy, demanding their rights, um, all the way from the Baltic down to Ukrainians, this national movement. Um, one of the most interesting documents I've found on this is uh, a report from the French military attaché in St. Petersburg in 1905, and he's in an absolute panic over the revolution. And he says, uh, if the Russians don't get a handle on this, it's going to drag everybody into war, which is interesting. And then he traces the actual geography of the Shatter Zone. He doesn't use that term, but he says, oh, well, you know, in Vilnius, all the way down to Kiev, these national movements are awakening, and it's going to spread, and there's no way to contain it. <clears throat> so Russia makes some concessions, but then backtracks, uh, leaving some grievances lingering. So when the war breaks out, it really energizes <coughs> and mobilizes these movements, as well as, as those in other uh, uh, empires. So the <coughs> outbreak of the war and its course really, I think, exacerbates the nationalist tensions that are festering beneath the surface prior to 1914. Some of this comes from above, when the emperors ask their subjects to serve loyally and so on, and perhaps make some vague <coughs> promises about what might come after the war. Interestingly, though, all three empires, right from the very beginning of the war, target the minorities in their enemy states, making them promises, telling them to rise up against their imperial overlords. And so they're all doing this. Um, the Germans drop leaflets in Russian Poland right after the war starts, saying rise up against the Tsar. Um, the Tsar, well, it's the Grand Duke Nikolai who signs it, but uh, the Tsar distributes, has these sort of smuggled in and distributed in various ways to Poles in, in Prussia and in Austria. Poles, the hour of your sort of, your, your liberation has arrived, your Slavic big brothers going to come in and we're going to have a new Poland under the Tsar and you're going to be free in your language and your religion and so on. Uh, and it's, it's quite explicitly aimed, this is already in late, this is like August 20th, 1914, aimed at the Poles uh, within the other empires. I mean, you can see it in these sort of insouciant uh, um, city seals at the top. Lvov, right? So he's basically saying, we're going to give you uh, Lvov and take it from the Austrians. Kruleviets could be a couple different places. I think it's most likely the Kruleviets that's in Silesia. So even just the kind of design of this flyer is making promises uh, about taking territory away from Germany and Austria and giving it to a Polish state. <clears throat> Some of it comes from below. There's national self-mobilization, uh, for example, among the sharpshooter societies and the... Um, the legions, as well as kind of fraternal aid societies are ethnically defined fraternal aid societies that are set up in places like Austria. So there's a, a kind of Polish organization that's going to take care of Polish soldiers and provide aid and so on to Polish families. So the course of the war and the occupations especially accelerate and exacerbate this process, including drawing in people who may have been indifferent before. So one thing that historians of Austria have noticed is that these kind of uh, unofficial 
aid societies actually did a much better job taking care of people than the imperial government did. So already during the course of the war, people are becoming accustomed to thinking in more national terms about government and about what it could, what it could do for them. So uh, divisions are created by the acceleration of these competing demands, especially in 1917, once the Re Russian Revolution happens and the discussion begins in earnest with real consequences, right? What is going to follow this? Uh, people begin to scramble to impose their own kind of vision on Central Europe as it begins to collapse. And by occupations. Uh, occupations, in many ways, even when there was not a, a lot of violence, um, undermine the kind of habits and the traditions and the bonds that allowed these, these societies to coexist peacefully and, uh, and it generated stability in the region before the war, just in the way they created resentments and suspicions and so on. Uh, one, one example is what happens to the Jews. Uh, the Jews throughout occupied Central Europe are widely suspected of being favored by the Germans, that the Germans are doing special favors for them, and that they are getting rich uh, off, the, off the kind of misery of the non-Jewish population. So there's uh, you know, speculation, the Jews were all speculators and so on. And uh, you know, here's the Poles you know, worshiping at their, at their God, I guess, uh, our Lord. <clears throat> so, of course they weren't, right? But it's the, the, just the nature of the war and the occupation to bring these out. But Lvov Lemberg is another good example that there's, yes, there's plenty of tensions between Poles and Ukrainians, but they get along okay. I mean, it's at least stable. Uh, what happens is, uh, I have a very evocative memoir from this time. As the Russian armies close in, there's a kind of hysteria that sets in, and all of the Ukrainians are spying for the Russians and signaling them uh, and building these fires that send smoke signals to tell them where the <laughs> troops are and so on. And there's just people beaten up uh, in the streets with these wild mobs attack people. I mean, there's a grain of truth to it. There are, there are Ukrainians who are welcoming the Russians, but not many, and I would say not most of them. Uh, and it's interesting, according to this memoir, I think one of the big differences of the war in the East and the West is that in, in the East, civilians were terrified much of the time. Um, and it's very interesting, He's, this person, this Polish person says, at the beginning of the war, all of the press in Lemberg was sort of dismissing our claims that the Ukrainians were traitors. Uh, but what happens, he says, well, then they saw we were right, and they see that they are right when they can hear the Russian army coming. Once they can hear the guns in the east and they are getting closer, then people start to panic. And then he says, yeah, finally the newspapers realize that we are right. But you know, really what happens is they're terrified, and they say, well, there must be Ukrainians signaling the Russians. How else could they have gotten, you know, gotten here so fast? Um, so people are afraid. That brings out, I think, not the best. Um, at the top, is that showing the old and new calendar dates, or just the? Age? Yeah, it is. It is the old and new because um, this was a this relocated into into Russia after the mm -hmm. after the uh, German occupation. So. So and even where it didn't lead to that kind of violence, the sense that. Uh, this, this order was coming to an end and something new was going to have to take its place. Restarted the, the dispute, for example, in Vilno between the Polish and Lithuanian nationalists over who was going to dominate the city. And in Posen, this happened in Posen as well, where Germans viewed their Polish neighbors with deep suspicion 
and um, wrote angry letters, some of these kind of hate mail that the guy who was commanding the, the German occupation of Poland would get calling him an idiot and a fool and you know he was playing with fire and so on. Um, so the Germans thought the Poles were disloyal. Now this is one of those arguments that German historians, I think, there would just be too much cultural baggage for them to take up because in point of fact they were disloyal. Um, national democracy was the most popular movement in Prussian Poland. One of the aims of national democracy was to detach Posen from Germany and reunite it with the other Polish territories. Um, and uh, I think a I know actually a historian who set out to, to talk about the cultural construction of Polish disloyalty, and he was going to study the Polish units at the front. And he found out, oh, actually, they did desert, and uh, you know they weren't loyal. So he tried; he made it into some other sort of argument. But um, you know, sometimes these things are well founded. And it's really remarkable because the Polish representatives in, you know, in the German Reichstag are sort of secretly meeting with people in other parts of Poland and so on. So, for understandable reasons, I think the Germans did not give them any reasons to be loyal. So for many reasons and in many ways, the pressures of the war hastened the end of the multinational empires and plunged the region to a violent uh, period of disintegration. It began before the war, I would argue, in 1905 and continued for a while afterwards. Uh, there's a measure of stability that's achieved in 1921 when Poland's border wars finally come to an end. Even just for purely geographic reason, reasons, uh, it's Poland's unstable borders that are really driving the instability in the years after the war. 1921, it signs a peace treaty that, on armistice that brings the fighting to an end. And in fact, Polish historians refer to the post-war political order as the Versailles slash Riga system, because it's the peace of Riga that ends these wars and really uh, ends the uh, that initial period of violent conflict. So it's a process that Russia, Germany, and Austria, as well as all the people who lived along the scenes where these empires met, were caught up in, as the borderlands became embroiled in a series of overlapping civil and foreign wars, fought to determine what would emerge from what would emerge from the smoldering ruins of the pre-war empire. Conclusion then, I think we see a unity in the diversity of wartime experiences of the combatants in the Central European theater. In the way these empires struggled to master the forces that were unleashed by the war, and in the way that the people caught up in it all reacted to it. It was, moreover, a struggle with profound consequences. When Hitler presented to the world the invasion of Poland in 1939 as a means of settling accounts left over from the end of the Great War, it was eminently plausible. Just the next installment in a series of Central European border wars that have been fought and refought and simmered since 1918. As the process has not yet played out to its final conclusion, as from the Baltics to the Ukraine, disputes linger over exactly where imperial space ends and sovereign states began, a dispute that I would argue began uh, in earnest during the First World War. Thank you. <laughs>